Episode 18, Listen, Amplify, Act. On May 25th, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, George Floyd was killed on a city street by a white police officer. On March 13th, in Louisville, Kentucky, Breonna Taylor was shot and killed in her own living room when police officers forced themselves into her apartment with a no-knock warrant. On February 23rd, in Brunswick, Georgia, Ahmad Aubrey was chased down, shot, and killed by a former police officer and his 34-year-old son. This is a short list of countless other senseless deaths of black men and women that have happened in this country. Protests are happening nationwide, not just in Minneapolis, but in cities like Los Angeles and Chicago, as well as my own city of Fayetteville, Arkansas. I am an incredibly privileged white man. Maybe some of you fit that bill as well. And you're thinking to yourself, what can I do to help? I want to encourage you to do these three things. Listen, amplify, act. That's why I'm spending this episode amplifying voices of color so that they can share their experiences, their concerns, their emotions, and their hopes and ambitions for the future of America. In the show notes, you'll find a link to the Social Distancing Book Club. You'll see some books our guests have discussed today, and I hope you'll check them out. And if you have more book suggestions, send me a note. I'd love to add it to the list. This episode is three different interviews with four different people of color. Part one, Dwight. I'm from Dayton, Ohio. I was born and raised there. I never moved until I got to college, so me going from Ohio to Arkansas big change, you know what I'm saying? Completely different, like, doesn't even feel like the same country no more, you know? Different society in a sense. Then from there, I moved to D.C. for about six months. My senior year, I had a co-op in the um, United States House of Representatives, so I worked for uh, Congress for about six months on an internship, and then um, after I graduated, came back. I, you know, little, I wouldn't say little accomplishments, but, you know, things that, you know, a whole bunch of, like, accolades to uh, my name came after, you know, that door that opened up from there, I made, uh, I was 2019 Forbes under 30 scholar. I graduated and right now I work for the Illinois State House of Representatives, like the uh, the state of Illinois. Growing up, like most people do, like factors, you know, like uh, de facto segregation and stuff, like people are going to live with the people that they identify with. So my community that I lived in was mostly black. Well, it was mostly black in my city that I'm actually from is probably as close to 50-50 as you can get. So, but it's a clear distinction between the white side and the black side of town. You know, it's a clear distinction, but I can honestly say I was kind of, uh, I don't want to use the word privileged, but like, you know, to live in an area where I was, you know, around a lot of black people. And then when we did go to the other sides of town, we were welcome. Growing up, kind of was like it kind of got to be like you were blind from what was going on in the rest of the world or like in other areas of the world because you know you, for one you're young and naive and then two you've been communities like that you get to know everybody and when everybody looks like you 
it doesn't really dawn on you what's going on in other places. The thing about uh, Ohio is in the major cities of Ohio, the black population is very heavy. But like outside of the major cities, it's just cornfields. You know, it's a lot of rural areas. I didn't really start to like see things that were, I wouldn't even say race, because me personally, I've never, I've only had like one kind of racial encounter, but things like microaggressive in that distinction as I started to venture out into the other areas of Ohio, not necessarily in my city. That's when I started to see, you know, like uh, signs of like just different things that will make people uncomfortable. When you go to a more white populated, especially rural county. So when you see things about like signs on the freeway that are like man-made signs, not like billboards, but just signs that as you drive it through and you see things like we have to protect ourselves from the from the thugs with guns. It's like we know who the thugs with guns are. You know what I'm saying? The thugs are only really in the last five, like 10, 15, 20 years, only been a very, very surface term to not say black people. You know what I mean? Like the you know, they don't use thugs for like crim- for like white collar criminals and stuff like that. So when you see things like that, that's when you start to realize that, okay, where I live is a little bit, is, is a safe space. But then, uh, as I grew older, the police tensions, especially with the police brutality and things going on, like, uh, I distinctly remember I was either, it was either my senior year of high school or like very early in college, like freshman, sophomore year. I got, I got pulled over by the police for something very, it was probably, I think I had like my taillight was out or something or one of my, uh, my license plate light or something was out. I remember like they came up to my car, flashing the light, all that stuff. They was like, all right, I'll pull you over. Da, 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 da. Do you have your license registration? I'm like, yeah. Can I look for it real quick? She's like, the cop is like, who's a white lady? He's like, yes. I'm like, all right, cool. So then I started looking for it. I reached under my seat. She's like, hey, can you stop moving so fast? I'm getting nervous. I'm like, why are you getting nervous? And it's like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to tally that up to to that. But it's like, I'm pretty sure me saying I'm about to literally look for my license plate and then I I look for it. And now you're in a sense of panic. It was literally like, hey, can you stop reaching around getting nervous and I want to make it home. The, just the logic of, oh, you pulled me over from my taillight, my taillight or whatever, something I'm, I'm not going to jail for it. And I and my my instinct would be to shoot you, or my instinct would be to cause harm to you so I can get away. Like, how does that make sense to you? When I got to Arkansas, it was more of an eye opener to see how, because since I lived in such a fifty fifty community, when I got to Arkansas, it was clearly seen like black people live in these areas, white people live in these areas, like it's clear as day. I lived with my mom and two older sisters my mom and my dad were got divorced when i was probably like in second grade or something so i'm very young um my sisters have a different dad so it's a little gap between my sisters were about 10 years older than me both of them it got to the point by the time i turned like nine both my sisters moved out so essentially i was the only child you know my, my actual formative years of adolescence and becoming who i am i spent as the only child and it was just me and my mom uh, but my dad, like, I have a great relationship with my dad. I see my, 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 they just divorced, you know, I don't live with my dad, but I see him, I saw him every week, every week whenever I wanted to, you know, there's never a, a, a barrier there. But that's, that's how my household looked. So I was the only boy and I was the baby. When you talked about getting pulled over, you used that specific language. Was that something that you had been taught? Is that something that you had just seen happen before? Like, what was your, what was your thought process going through that? Yeah. So around the Trayvon Martin time, about middle of high schoolish, my family basically had a sit down talk about like, because like being, being black, you get taught about certain things about the world. Like you learn about 
how things were segregated, how, you know, just, you know, my, racial microaggressions that you may encounter. Like, you're not naive to what's going on, but as a young man, because the only thing you got to do is, like, you know, go play sports and, and go to school. It, it doesn't really affect you as much because you don't know, you don't understand financial situations, the economic uh, dispositions and different things like that that contributed from. But around high school is when the shift really happened. So I remember distinctly my two sisters being like, a lot's been going on, and because you're a very you're you you're very stereotypical of a person. You know, I'm I'm about five eleven, six foot. I'm a pretty I wouldn't say I'm like athletically built, but you know what I'm saying. Like I I'm I'm a pretty you know built guy that can be seen as a threat to people. You know, a tall black guy. You're becoming you know it's time for us to talk about what to do with the police. I remember the first thing they ever told me was literally if the cops come, already have your window rolled down. Have your license and your registration on your lap already and, and hold the steering wheel at 10 and 2 so they can see your hand. That was literally like the first thing they told me. And they said, like, literally talk to them, like, almost tell them what they want to hear. Uh, yes, officer. Yes, sir. No, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Why did you get pulled over? I don't know. Um, I, I, I don't know. Um, could, do you feel to explain? Like, don't give them no, don't give them no reason to be aggressive towards you. That was the main focus of everything. Like, whatever you do, do what you have to do to get home. If you feel like, all right, you got a ticket, oh, well, it is what it is. We'll, we'll get through that. If you feel like you're getting falsely accused or whatever, as long as they're not arresting you, like, just make it go as smooth as possible. Spend as little time with them as you can and come back home after you get pulled over because, obviously, if you got pulled over for one reason, you might get pulled over for the same reason by another cop. But the protest, uh, one that uh, I was a part of was this summer in Dayton, in Ohio, there was a KKK rally in the city paid, our city paid for their security. They paid basically to have the rally there. And it came out of city money. So we were all angry because essentially the KKK for help is a hate group. Like there's no way around it, you know, like y'all have no real purpose other than to spread like negativity, you know, without however you want to indoctrinate it, it sounded good, butter it up. We basically kind of acted as a perfunctory Black Lives Matter group and counter-protested against them. But the thing was, the way that they set it up, they set it up to where basically their streets were blocked off for their protest. It was pretty much a shot in that. So, you know, it didn't get to the, to the you know, the anarchy phase that you kind of are seeing in, you know, with Ferguson, also in, in Minneapolis right now, where people are, you know, getting hard. That was one of the, uh, one, like, distinct time I can literally say, like, I was, like, protesting, to, like, a counteraction of racism. How did that go over? I mean, it was good. It, it kind of got swept under the rug, especially by the media, because I don't, you know, I don't know why. It was essential that I think that for one, the voice of people were heard, like, especially being in date, like in date now, uh, especially post recession, like dating has, has turned into a, a very different place than how it was when I was growing up. When I was growing up, it was a thriving community full of industries. Recession hit. All the like manufacturing industries left, all the you know car makers and all the factories and different things left. It kind of got relegated to that token black community that you always hear about, where it's either you go to school or you play basketball or rap or something, you know, or you get caught up in the in the tailwind of the things that you know kind of keep us down as being in the hood and different things. So I think that when we heard that the KKK were rallying in Dayton, it was kind of like a slap in the face in a sense. Not only are you doing this, but you're coming to one of the more blacker areas in Ohio. Like you guys in you guys are coming to our streets with this.
What people don't understand is that the term equality has really messed up the, I think, the curing of racism. When you have equality, everyone gets everything, right? But that's not necessarily true. Like, we need, some, I like to think of this, we need something called a more equitable situation. We need things like white people as a whole, as, as we look, it's clear that they're not willing to give to get. Like, in order for us to gain, you guys have to release something. You know, whenever we make white people uncomfortable in certain situations, that's when things basically get out of hand. Like, the, the token uh, example of what I'm talking about is desegregation of schools right literally all we did was come to the school like we didn't do anything but it it sparked a flame because people were uncomfortable we took away something that they were accustomed to we took something away and gave it to another group of people and they felt like that they were being that their situation was being diminished when in all actuality they were still in the best possible situation possible. But because they're so used to getting so much, it's like a spoiled kid. Like you, you tell them yes so many times. As soon as you tell them no, they have a temper tantrum. And that type of thing has progressed and progressed and it keeps progressing and keeps progressing. And that's why we're seeing all these riots and stuff because it's like, at what point is something going to work? We try everything. We did the marches. We tried kneeling. We did the signs. We made petitions. We started, more black people are starting to vote. Like, when are we going to see some change? And that's why these these riots are happening because people are, are like, all right, screw this. We're about to just burn it all down because we tried everything. Every time a white person kills a black person, it's not a, it's not a, a, a hate crime. Things happen. We're human. But it's just like every week, every month, every two years, it's like, again, another one. You know what I'm saying? The first time you hit it, it might not break, but you keep hitting it in the same spot. What's going to happen to it? So we just keep getting hit. We just keep getting hit. And that's where this, this civil unrest happens. You're obviously a very accomplished person. You've had a lot of opportunities. You've you've done a lot of really great and awesome things in the last four or five years. Do you ever worry that you may be one of these next names <laughs> that were that were turning into a hashtag. At what point is, do I gain the access of feeling safe in America? Like, how high do I have to be on the pedestal for people to be like, oh, that's not a random black guy. That's such and such. Oh, that's Jay-Z. Oh, that's LeBron James. We know him. We're not going to kill him. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, at what point do I get to feel like, do I get to feel like I don't have to watch my back? I don't have to worry about these things. I have a college degree. I got all these different things, you know, I literally work for the government, but, you know, I still, to this day, uh, I go to a store, I get followed around in the store, like, I, I, it is so funny when you catch people following you, like, the owner of the store, or, like, the general, like, you catch them all the time, it's like, they turn, you, you do something so regular, you look at a product, and then you turn around, they running back, they acting like they sleeping, they doing, they fixing something right next to you, you know what I mean? They try to make it look like they're not following you. I still expect, like, why, I'm not coming in here to steal, sir. Like, I'm not. And then, like, it, it, there's been times where I think, but, like, I'll walk out the store. Hey, what's in your pockets? My cell phone, my wallet, my, I don't have anything. Me, personally, I would like to think that I'm a very, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty productive citizen. I don't do any, I'm pretty much as clean as they come. And I still have to experience these things. So just imagine, I can only imagine how it feels when it's something, when it's something provoking the incident. I know it's, it's very quick at times when, when someone um, gets arrested by the cops or get, matter of fact, not even get arrested, but when they get pulled over or anything, they get detained, anything. And they actually have a gun, but it's legal. But now they're in the situation because they're a black guy with a gun, so it's assumed that it's illegal and they were about to go on the killing spree and X, Y, and Z. So, you know, those things happen to us all the time. 
that happened to me and my friends one time. Like, we got pulled over by the cops. One of my friends, I think he had some weed or something. You know, some, something very, like, it doesn't even matter. One of my friends had a gun. The gun was registered in his name, but we all got to get out the car. We in handcuffs. We on the street, and they're searching the car, looking for anything that they can find. They got us all on the, all sitting down on the curb. One of my friends is handcuffed on the cop car, and we're sitting there. We got our hands up behind our back like like they used to do the tornado drill while they searching for everything. And they calling in, back up. They doing all this stuff over really a, a little bit of weed, and one of my friends had a gun. So just imagine my friend with the gun got any belligerent, and they already calling in back up. And really the only reason why we walked away that day is because a black cop came to me and told us like what like exactly what we need to say to get to get home because we were out there for like an hour and they were calling like you know what I'm saying a black guy came up to me in the middle of this while the white cops were doing their thing he was like hey say X Y and Z so you can leave and it kind of becomes normal it's like here we go again like I got pulled over here we, like I done been pulled over five six seven times for whatever reasons here we go again let me get my stuff let me put my hands on the wheel let me look forward yes sir no sir like here we go again. Like, nobody wants the, the country to be in this, like, type of turmoil, but every major change ever has come after a riot. This is misconception that Martin Luther King just marched down Washington, holding hands, kumbaya, and singing, wade in the water, and all the Negro spirituals. No, that's not how it happened. There were riots all through the South. It ended with the March on Washington once, once we started seeing real progress, but the process to get to the March on Washington, hundreds of people died. Hundreds of people died. Hundreds of buildings were destroyed. And then on top of that, you had the actual people who were not even the police, but just people who, who were uh, against desegregation acting towards the, the black people still. Like you had church bombings. You had you had people uh, get their houses and their cars bombed. Like it's, it was, it's been way worse. This is the only life that you get. And you have the opportunity to speak up. We're not in a, in a situation to where we can't use our voices. So that's one. And I feel like I owe it to myself and for the people who will come after me and my colleagues and various people to actually carry on the progress that happened before us. So, like, in all honesty, in my lifetime, I don't think this is getting fixed. This is a lifelong battle. The only hope is really for the next generation. Because, I mean, think about it. You know, if Harriet Tubman... Harriet Tubman knew that she was going to be, a, well, not a slave her whole life, but, you know what I'm saying, slavery was going to exist the whole time. That's why they created that system to get people about it there so the next group of people, like, then the sharecroppers, then the people who had to deal with Jim Crow. Like, if Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King knew that wasn't going, I'm not going to say he knew it wasn't going to change in his lifetime, but he knew he was fighting a, a lifelong battle. He knew that it wasn't going to be fine and dandy as soon as they lifted whatever laws. He knew it wasn't, he knew he was laying his life on the line. You know what I'm saying? He knew that he might not have even got to see the change actual, actually happen. It's almost like the, mo the story of Moses, like you're leading them to the promised land, but you don't get to see it. But do that mean that you stop leading them? No, you still owe it to these people to get them in a better situation. Part two, Neba and Angie. Okay. Hi, everyone. I'm Neba Evans. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. However, now I reside in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I go to the University of Arkansas and the School of Journalism Department, but I am focusing on documentary. Um, however, I went to the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff for my undergrad degree in mass communication. Things about me, I'm here I love to talk <laughs> and I love to share experiences. And I feel like one of the things that 
I am really good at is is making connections and connecting people together. But I hope this podcast is really eye-opening and it can bridge some problems and offer some solutions for not only the Black community, but all communities together and what we can do as a nation going forward. Hey everyone, I'm Angie. I also attended the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff for my undergrad and I'm currently in between post-grad life and law school. So I grew up in Hot Springs, Arkansas um, and then I came to Pine Bluff for school and I just really fell in love with the community. So that's still where I reside and I find it um, very fitting with everything going on that I have a chance to make a difference here in this city. Um, and I also enjoy documenting and um, content creation. So it's really cool to be in a space with people who are like-minded. Growing up from elementary, middle, and high school, I live in a pretty mixed community. It was pretty diverse. However, my first experience um, with racism, I was at a summer camp. And it was me and a couple of friends that were white. And we were at we were at Claire's. And I wanted to buy these like really nice red sunglasses. We all bought the same pair of sunglasses. So we were all in line. They had, to me, a wonderful checkout experience. However, when I got to the front, she didn't want to serve me. She didn't want to check me out. And I'm just looking like, okay, why? Like, you've, you've been doing great thus far. Why can't you just check out my little sunglasses and put it in the bag? And she was rude. She did check me out, but she threw my sunglasses like in a bag. And then she kind of like threw the bag like at me. And I just felt really hurt because I'm just like, I don't know you. Like what could be the reason why you would treat me differently than the people that went before me? And I was around like 12 or 13 years old. And so it was kind of like an eye-opening experience for me coming from this place where I felt like I belonged in my home, in my hometown, and I felt secure and safe. And then going to a different area and not really feeling that love and that security that I felt in my home environment. So that was my very first experience with racism. I felt like... I felt hurt, but I also knew. So I guess I can say that was my first experience with racism, but the idea of racism wasn't new to me. So I feel like my parents definitely did their part in teaching me, you know, Black history. And with Black history, it's also teaching, you know, racism as well. So we would go to museums. Of course, I'm from Atlanta. So of course, we went to the Martin Luther King Museum. And of course, she explained, you know, difficult concepts with me, my mother and father at a young age. So it's kind of like, okay, I understand that I'm different. They did a good job of letting me know that these things happened in the class, but because the color of my skin, that I will be treated differently. I had a very weird <laughs> upbringing because my mom is adopted and like we really just don't communicate with that side of the family. And I unfortunately do not know who my father is. So we had a lot of white family take us in. Like we went to white churches. Um, I was often the only black girl in my classes. I didn't even really think that racism was a thing. Like I was experiencing microaggressions my whole life, but I didn't really comprehend that that's what they were. And I didn't think they were like that big of a deal. 
But when Trayvon Martin died, again, being the only black girl in a lot of my classes, I knew something didn't feel right. But like at the time, you know, having grown up around them and, you know, hearing their rhetorics, a lot of them were conservative. So I kind of adopted that mentality. I would regurgitate really ignorant things like, well, he shouldn't have been wearing a hoodie or, you know, he shouldn't have been walking like he's a human being, you know. But at the time, like being surrounded by that, I was like, well, he shouldn't, have, you know, and he wasn't doing anything wrong. Fast forward to 2015 when I was a senior in high school, Mike Brown died. And this time I was like, nah, that's that's not cool. And like it was so uncomfortable. It really almost forced me to remember that I was black because having um, no family that was black because my mom was adopted. Um, I honestly felt ostracized by the black community as well for a majority of my life. And it wasn't until I attended UAPB, which was, which is an HBCU that I felt comfortable. It wasn't that UAPB taught us to be more vocal and um, activists, but like we were surrounded by each other. So we felt like it was a safe space. And so I, the, I found my voice, um, while I was at UAPB. And in that time, I was a freshman. I didn't understand the importance of say things sometimes, but also be quiet sometimes because it's still traumatizing. So I was like on Facebook, just angry, posting all these things all the time. And at the same time, Trump was also running for election. And so then it was then that I was getting a lot of uh, flack from people who I grew up with in churches, people who I used to babysit their children. You know, it was then that they were like, hold on. Why are you sound so angry? And that's when I realized, okay, I love these people, but I'm not them. And they don't, you know, they they have to understand that as well. We have different experiences. This is heavy. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I think that these, need, these conversations need to be had. I agree with Angie. I feel like these conversations need to be had between different people. I feel like on one hand, let's like, Going back from the beginning when I was kind of sharing my story, it's kind of different when someone that doesn't look like you is asking your opinion on race. And I feel like that's really hard for a lot of people to me, people of color to kind of like share just because it's just like, for me, it's just like, I don't want to say the wrong thing or not trying to overstep, but it's just like, you don't, I don't want to say the wrong thing where I know that I might be impacted negatively. And it seems like that's how it is, or that's how it is, like, not saying in this particular um, conversation, but that's how it is, like, in the workplace or with friends or with other people when you're having conversations like outside of your race is just like okay like I don't want to get impacted negatively like I don't want y'all to say something talk about me bad lose a job feel like restricted because I know a lot of people that you know have different experience and experience different levels I guess of racism at work but they're completely silent because they know that if they say something, they might have a negative impact. So I feel like this conversation between the three of us could maybe spark conversations in friend groups or in other places that can kind of put racism out there, talk about race in a different way so that everyone feels okay to kind of 
share their experiences because if we're not sharing our experiences, then we're right, we're not really learning how other people feel and how other people act and how other people are impacted by certain things. My little brother is 16. It's so crazy because Angie's little brother is like 15 going into um, the 11th grade. My little brother is 16 going into the 11th grade. So it's kind of like we have kind of like similarities there and being the oldest (laughs) sister. Wow. (laughs) It's funny. It's funny to me. But I felt like I needed to have those conversations with my brother and kind of like letting him know what's what and he's like 16 so he's like understanding what's going on but he's not really understanding like he gets that things are happening and he understands that somebody black has passed away and and another person of color has passed away before that and then another person of color has passed away before that but he kind of really doesn't understand like the deeper meanings um of what people are rebelling for and what people are riding for and what people are in the streets for the other day i think it was yesterday i i called him into my room and i just wanted to let him know your voice matters like you matter and I want you to know that you matter and the things that people are doing right now, the the marches that are in the street, the rebellion that's happening is for you, is for us. And he was just like, okay, <laughs> like he gets it. But it's just like, I don't know if it'll resonate with him because he hasn't experienced life yet. Like he hasn't experienced anything yet going to Angie's point like he will have to experience those things to kind of like connect the two. And so he was just like, Neba, why are you, why are you tearing up? (laughs) Why are you getting emotional? And I'm just like, because I want you to understand, Mm -hmm. like, I love you. I love you and you matter to me. And that the things that are happening is because of the color of our skin. Like that's like, it's because of who we are and we can't change who we are, but we can change how things go moving forward. And I just, and I I wanted him to understand that, that he can be that change as well. But I feel like he's just going to have to go out there and kind of like feel life a little bit more. But until then, I feel like I will always be that big sister. And I guess I'm his only big sister, (laughs) but I always be that person to say, Hey, you matter, your voice matters and your opinions matter. And you should do what you feel is right at the moment. And right now what's right is educating himself and learning about what's happening and not being misconstrued from the misinformation and kind of like settling with the fact that there's a race war outside during a pandemic and we are trying to figure out what's going on and what's our next step. I I just, man, like sometimes when we talk about our like little brothers and little sisters or even like the future generations of like black America, like sometimes I can be so moved with like questions and emotions that like, I don't even have the words, but I just, my heart, it's heavy when I think about it at times Mm -hmm. and I feel like Neba you're saying the right things and you know Matthew I feel like hosting these conversations it does give me hope that you know people will eventually listen and that we will eventually like move forward and make small steps towards progress 
Agreed. I shared a quote with um, Matthew earlier, and I just wanted to know how you felt about it. I posted this on my Instagram and my Twitter, but it's something that I wrote down when I was feeling really low. And for the past few days, I've been feeling like there's a weight. It's like a weight on my shoulders. And it's just like a weight on my heart. And so I just wrote this. And Angie, please let me know if this resonates with you. But I said, I wrote, I am love and anger. I am determined and heavy, knowing that I carry the light of my ancestors and the pain of my people. But who better to do it? Who better to cross the finish line than me? Mm -hmm. That's good. I think that it's more than a physical warfare. I think that it's definitely a spiritual warfare. And I I think that the issues of race that we are dealing with go way deeper than just in America. Um, they go before even colonization. Um, there's a book called The Destruction of Black Civilization that I would recommend for anyone who is interested. And it's written by Chancellor Williams. But one, the more you know about the fight that we've had as a people, and not only the fight, but how resilient and persistent we have been to get to this point. And sometimes when I think about progress, it can make me a little sad when I see, like, we're still fighting. You know, like, even in Africa, China is recolonizing Africa, and African immigrants can't even, you know, stay in China. African immigrants are made to be slaves in Israel and, you know, these other uh, Middle Eastern countries. And it it breaks my heart and it makes me think like, have we actually progressed? But I think the fact that we are even still here, we're still recreating, you know, despite all of the blatant attacks that have been made because of the color of our skin, like it reignites a fuel that no matter how much we've been through and no matter how much further we still have left to go, we're still here, <laughs> you know? And like, the things that our history have has shown is it's honestly unbelievable that we're we're even still here in my opinion and so i feel like i don't have the right to give up you know what i mean like even in america police brutality is awful i'm not saying that it's okay at all i don't wish that on anybody but what our ancestors had to go through i feel like we don't get to be tired like we can be tired we we get to be you know heavy with emotion but we don't get to give up compared to what they've been through. And so that's what it does for me. Exactly. I feel like for that last point, I feel like that resonates with me with my little phrase that I said, when it's just like, who better to do it? Who better to cross the finish line than me, mm. than us? I feel like I I feel like I have to keep going. Yeah. And I have to give my best. And I have to do the absolute most that I can do because I'm doing it for I'm doing it for my my family, my immediate family. I'm doing it for my grandparents, my my great grandparents that I've never met. <laughs> I'm doing it for the my ancestral past, but I'm also, you know, doing it for, you know, Sandra Bland, you know? I'm also doing it for, you know, Eric Garner and Trayvon Martin and George and Brianna. Like, it's just like, I have to keep going because I know that their life wasn't, I know that their life is meaningful. And so I have to keep going because of them. And I have to do this because of them. And I feel like, 
I agree with Angie with where we're at as a country now and the progress that we've seen thus far. And I'm not saying that there isn't any progress, but we have it's we have so much we have so much to do and there's even more progress to be made. And I feel like if we come together, um, not just learning or educating ourselves on Black history, because Black history is American history. So I, I feel like if across the board in our school systems, like I'm reading the book um, and it's about Red Summer. I have never heard about Red. I feel bad, but I've never heard about Red Summer before until I started reading this book. And it's just like, what have I missed? <laughs> so many pieces of, of history that we just don't know. Maybe that's because it's labeled Black history, you know? Or maybe, I'm just trying to say Black history, but maybe it's just Native American history or Chinese history, or but it's, it's American history. It happened on this soil. So I feel like education and and equipping ourselves with knowledge everyone no matter the 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 color of anyone's skin obtaining knowledge and learning and then making sure that like you're doing now talking on different platforms conversing with one another I feel like that's maybe how we push forward but right now I feel like I can't forget and I will never forget, but I can't forget what happened, what what has happened to my people. So in this moment, I'm going to do everything that I can. Like, it's been so weird because I feel so heavy. I feel so heavy about everything that's going on. But I also like, OK, well, I need to check this off my list. I need to register for classes. I need to read these books. I need to find internships. Like, it's also like a motivation for me to say, you better. Can we cuss on this podcast? <laughs> I better my ass better do something great and I have to do something great and I have to make an impact because there's people who will never get the chance again. Do you feel like that's putting too much pressure on yourself though? (laughs) That, that there's this element of that, like I have to create something great and maybe there's this element of, I can't do anything until I do something great. Do you feel that pressure at all when it comes to creating stuff that I need it to be great because I need it to be remembered? I absolutely do. Um, Man, being especially like as this field of content creation is new, I feel like everyone is really trying to find their own path. But I also feel like and Neva, I'm sure you can attest to this, you know, having attended an HBCU. it, It really feels like when you're a content creator for a purpose it's even harder because until things like this happen, people really don't care, you know? And like, even though I content create for a purpose, I do understand why people don't care because it's heavy and life is hard enough without having to fight this looming battle of injustice. You know what I'm saying? So like, I understand those perspectives, but I also feel like when it comes to like the African-American or like black community, the only reason that it feels like it's so much pressure, this is just my theory, my opinion, but I think it's because there's not enough of us that are stepping up. Um, and I feel like there's more of us stepping up slowly because a lot of us, um, I can't speak for everyone, but I like my late aunt, she was totally against protesting, totally against riots and all of that. And I think a lot of us have been like taught to not do it because 
those who raised us actually experienced it firsthand and they were so traumatized by it that they kind of sometimes unintentionally discourage us from being the, you know, from carrying the torch forward. And so once more of us come together, we can protect each other and we can alleviate some of that pressure from each other because we don't have to do it alone anymore. And I think that that's going to happen slowly. Let me just use my personal experience. I graduated from the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff, right? And the next semester, I went to the University of Arkansas, which is a totally different demographic. I believe on campus is like where 4%, the Black population is 4% on the campus, where at my HBCU, we're like 90%. <laughs> I guess the pressure was for me being at this new institution that I have to be amazing and check all the boxes not I mean because I am black but also because I have a responsibility to my previous institution to be great as well which is a black institution so it's like I can't tell you per se what the pressures are because I feel like throughout my life there were different points in which I felt pressured to be my absolute best or to move forward because I am Black. So I can't give you just like one way or maybe this one facet of why I go so hard or try to go so hard. But when I came to the University of Arkansas, like I had imposter syndrome so, so bad. And I feel like all graduate students have imposter syndrome at some point um, or law students, you know, have it at some point. But I had it. It was horrible. And on the outside, I don't know if you ever even seen this, Matthew, but like on the outside, I was just like bubbly and happy and, you know, willing to participate. Cool as a cucumber. <laughs> cool as a cucumber. But on the inside, I'm just like, am I saying the right things? Does it sound right? Is everything like, am I, am I talking in slang? Cause, cause you know how in class I'd be like, Oh, this is popping. <laughs> but that's just a piece of, that's a piece of me coming out. That's just like how I talk, how I express myself. But at first I'm just like, do I even say that? It was kind of like, Oh, I have to be, I have to code switch. I have to code switch in this new space. And I wasn't, you know, used to code switching for long amounts of time. Like <laughs> I'm in school, I'm at this whole like different, you know, university, this different institution. So it's just like, I wasn't being my true self and it didn't change until the end of the semester until like I felt comfortable in my space and being around you guys, people in my cohort and people in my classroom to say, okay, I can actually relax. And I can be, I guess, I can let go of some of that pressure and I can just be my regular self and my regular self doesn't have to be considered, you know, just black. Is is that kind of making sense to you, Angie? Like, it's not, I'm the black girl in the class, but it's just like, I'm being me, but me just, it's more. What you're saying is valuable. And I, I think that even the fact that you, being in this space are struggling to find the words because you value how everybody receives it is something that people also need to see. You know, there's an extra pressure, maybe not even on content creation, but how you carry and express yourself as a black woman navigating in these other spaces. I think there's value in that. 
my mouth sometimes gets me in trouble. I used to really self-censor. But like I said, when Trayvon Martin happened, Trayvon Martin happened in 2012. And like, I was really censoring myself then. When Mike Brown happened, I just did not care. And I think the retaliation that I faced from my church members made me care that much less. And so I do self-censor. It took me a long time to get to a point where I just feel like, hey, if you don't like it, I hope you know I have good intentions, but it needs to be said. And there are days where I struggle with that. For instance, I have a YouTube channel and I self-censor, but I really don't self-censor to navigate other spaces. I have to self-censor because I really want my message to be heard among my community. And I know that sometimes I can be so passionate. It can come across as unintentionally condescending. And so um, I, I guess I have had those experiences, but when it comes to like saying what, what I feel like those who are complicit in injustice, whether it's intentional or not, I have learned just to say it because another thing like about me and probably even most people is even when I don't agree with something, sometimes if it's said to me, especially if it offends me, I will think about it. And maybe after I think about it, I'll see, okay, they were right. But if it doesn't really resonate with me, I won't ever think about it. And so I I keep that in the back of my mind when I speak to people like this might hurt your feelings, but you might think about this and realize, okay, there might be some truth to this offensive statement. It was nights that I'll be on Twitter to like four o'clock in the morning and I didn't even really want to go to sleep because I just wanted to keep reading and I wanted to keep like understanding the situation and what's happening and how are people writing and how are people re- rebelling and are people okay are my people okay are the people that I know you know are okay and it was it was a lot and it's still a, a lot I'm right now trying to stop looking at my phone <laughs> I'll turn, like I said earlier, like uh, I turn my phone off for like multiple hours of the day. And then when I feel like I'm up to it, I'll go ahead and check Twitter and I'll go ahead and, you know, check Instagram and CNN and check those different news sites. But it's a lot. And I feel like a lot of people feel anger and anxiousness and maybe for other people regret for not being, you know, out there doing their part or they might feel bad. It's just, I feel like it's so many different emotions that's going on. I agree with you. <laughs> I I just feel like, like you said, there, there are a lot of emotions and when I'm overcome with emotion, I just struggle to find the words. So that's when I just stand in solidarity with my brothers and sisters and the allies. What gives you hope? Or what gives you confidence that someday this will all change? Honestly, when I see the uprising of movements like this, um, something about this one just feels different, you know? And as I said, I'm a spiritual person. And um, I believe that 2020 has some elements of the number four, which is the number of completion. I feel like 2020 could have some elements of completion, Um And I still think that 2020 is the year of vision. Sometimes things are clouding your vision. And so sometimes it takes chaos for you to see clearly. And I think that in the midst of this chaos, there are people who are understanding things that they have just tried not to understand or couldn't understand before. There are people who are having to speak truth to things that they denounced before or didn't want to acknowledge before. And so that's what gives me hope is seeing 
you know, even people who aren't black, you know, seeing people like you, Matthew, use your platform to give black voices, you know, to make sure that they're heard. That's what gives me hope. And, you know, Neva, you give me hope to see more of, you know, my generation. We've collaborated and put our minds together. Like, what can we do to see conversations like that? That gives me hope, um, especially when it's us, when it's the younger generation, because we're the ones that have to keep it going. It gives me hope when I see people from different backgrounds tuning in and wanting to understand what other people that might not look like them are going through. I feel that, you know, there are different levels of racism. There's a book, it's called White Fragility. It's a really, really good book. I read that. Um, I just finished reading that maybe like a week ago. And it kind of like detailed the different levels of racism in our nation. And basically, I feel like people know that police brutality is bad like those are like the overtly like white socially unacceptable things like hate crimes and saying the n-word and you know racist jokes but I feel like people if they're listening and wanting a change that they'll actually see the more you know insidious socially acceptable levels of racism as well, like calling the police on Black people or mass incarceration or systemic racism. So I feel like it gives me hope when people are tuning in, not just for the big things, but using this rebellion and these riots and these marches as a way to educate themselves on the little things or the socially acceptable racist or racism um facets that is kind of like dividing our country. I feel like I appreciate you, Matthew, for, you know, allowing Angie and I to share our experiences with you and hopefully with others. But this is a sensitive topic for us as well. And we feel, I'll say I feel relief and I feel pain and I I feel so many different emotions right now that it might be hard well for me it's, it might be hard to really share everything that I want to share but if you're being sensitive and if you really want to understand I feel like listening is always the first step maybe reaching out is another way to being sensitive and not in a way that's saying oh yeah I see everything that's going on I hope you're doing okay just like hey this time feels really stressful and if you need an ear I'm willing to listen if you need help I'm willing to do. Um, I feel like that will make me feel better. <laughs> but I feel like that will make, you know, others feel heard as well. Um, one person from my school, our school, reached out and she was just like, hey. And she was a white person as well. She was like, hey, it seems really stressful. I hope you're okay. And if you want to talk, I'm here. And that just did everything for me because I didn't even know that she cared. So I really, really appreciate that. And I feel like others will appreciate that sensitivity to this situation as well. Part three, John. So I, my name is John Hanfelder. So I am the, it's kind of always confusing to everyone who I try to speak to. So basically I will say that I do data analysis for the drug court in Madison County. So I'm kind of the associate program evaluator there. 
Uh, so it's kind of complicated for any, I think anybody that's biracial will tell you like, um, it's always a complicated situation. And for any biracial person that has a smooth transition into both black and white worlds, I commend you and I envy you. So my, my father is African-American. My mom is Caucasian, white, whatever you want to say. And I primarily grew up in the house with my mom. Uh, I do have one biracial sister and then I have two half brothers and sisters, one brother, one sister who are much older than I am. I'm, I would say that I'm connected with both sides of my family, but not to the same degree that a very like collectivistic family would be. But growing up in Edwardsville or Madison County in general, when the, like the majority of people that you come into contact are going to be white and they might, and if you're growing up in Edwardsville, they might be well-to-do, they might be lawyers, they might be doctors. Uh, you're going to be, even if you are African-American or biracial, you're going to be pretty detached from what's going on. So whenever white people talk about the, um, not just complacency, but the ignorance to what's going on, uh, like in Ferguson or when Trayvon Martin happened, uh, I will say that I was more connected to it. I was enraged by it. And that was my, (laughs) that was my first experience with, uh, and, and the election in 2008, that was my first experience with, uh, speaking with my white friends and them really not understanding where I was coming from. And then having to change my, almost my voice, like almost the change of identity where you have to kind of change the way you speak about it because you understand what toes you're stepping on in your social encounters. So I not only identify with the whitewashing that occurs in our education system and occurs in white communities and not talking about black history, but I also identify with the rage that comes with having to, that double consciousness the idea that you have to not talk about these things because you're going to, you're either going to face the the argument of there's pro, there's there's good people on both sides or whatever, or you're going to face just a quiet public shaming of you're that angry black guy, you know? Yeah, it's it's a frustrating thing, and I I don't know what it's like to be white to to be the angry white person about black black activism. When you talk about being biracial, do you come anywhere close to being able to pass as white in some scenarios? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like there, there, I know that there's, it's an entire spectrum of biracial people. Uh, some people look very stereotypically white. Some people look very stereotypically black, but I've been asked many times by, I don't even think just white people, but it's, you get the, what are you question? Cause I have a very like olive tint in the summer. I'm dark and the, in the winter I'm, I'm very light. With uh, dark features, I guess, <laughs> I guess you would say. But and people think I'm like Middle Eastern. They think I'm all types of stuff. And that totally, I will say, that totally adds to my privilege. Wh- whether it's uh, being a, I'm a tall male, so I have privilege there. I grew up in a white community. I have privilege there. That is rather friendly to black people, um, but still complacent. And I also can pass as whatever you want me to be. <laughs> you know. It's not it's not right in your face. So I, I did want to talk about that because I think that in the least narcissistic of ways, I think my my life kind of is a good example of someone who who starts off more militant that they than they were in the middle of their life, and then they kind of come back around to that militancy. Because in high school and college, I kind of realized how you can you can speak eloquently and kind of develop a sense of humor about it, which kind of allows the white people around you to be to be comfortable and they should be comfortable. They just, they're just without talking about the comfortable topic or the uncomfortable topics, but using it to my advantage, I think if you speak the way white people do and you make jokes the way the white people do, that definitely is going to be 
to your advantage. And if you just don't talk about un- uncomfortable topics like race, that's definitely going to be used to your advantage. I think my entire life, if you grow up in an affluent white community and you are passing a little bit for a, for a white person, I think that's always going to be your advantage. What keeps you from moving further in that direction? Because obviously you you can and you have to some degree. And yet here you are talking on my show about the frustrations with the complacency and the complicity of of what's happening right now. So what's what's making you decide it's time to speak out and it's time to say something now? I think it's always been in me. I think it's in every person of color that it probably every minority. Um, I think that the, what holds you from doing it is a fear for me. I know I've spoken out of, (laughs) this is going to sound like very, very basic, but I've spoken out on Facebook a few times. My friends have spoken out with the recent things that have happened in the news. And the one thing that holds you back. Yeah. I've, I've had a huge amount of anxiety after I post on Facebook about these super, for some divisive topics, you have a fear of anxiety because you don't, you know that people are, there, there's like 50 to 60% of the people in your life are going to be like, damn, I didn't know John was like that. I didn't know he thought like that. I didn't know he had those, that anger within him. And now I'm realizing, and I think our generation is, is turning 21, 22, 23, 24 years old or older, and they're finding their voice and they're realizing that they're adults and eventually we're going to have to run this country. And with the coming of social media, with the coming of YouTube, when it can raise the voices of people like Cornel West, people like Dave Chappelle, people like Bell Hooks, um, those black intellectuals who really speak truth to justice, you see them doing it and you, you see that they've been doing it since the 60s. They've been doing it since the 70s when it wasn't popular. And so you kind of uh, look at yourself and you see the way that you've been acting for the past five to 10 years. And though you were a child and you really had no choice in the matter, really, if you think about it psychologically, you are an adult now and you have control over your what you speak out about and what you think critically about. And I'm kind of addicted to it now because it's it, I've always kind of I think there's a core in every human being where we we seek out the truth. And if you don't, then there's an issue there. I was like in middle school when Trayvon Martin or early high school when Trayvon Martin happened and then still in high school whenever the Michael Brown thing happened. But I think that that is when you start realizing that it's not just a show when you can you just watch it's not just like a media thing that you can just watch on the tv because you you hear the the arguments from the other side you hear the arguments of like well that's not helping their cause i don't understand why they're rioting i don't understand what's going on and then you look at the way that your african-american family would talk about it you look at the way that your african-american friends would talk about it and you you look at the fact that those are human beings who have been dealing with this stuff for let's let's be honest 400 years and it forces you to think critically about why they're resorting to violence why are they resorting to riots you know but what what how many times do you have to be rejected by the people who tell you that things are going to change before you turn to showing people that you are dangerous if you don't listen to me it's dangerous because these systems that you've put in place are are dangerous for me so if i have to fight fire with fire then i'll do it and i think in high school there was a core of that in me where i was like these people this isn't just the only re- this isn't just something where you just reprimand black people and tell them that that's not how you you find justice even though i didn't voice it at the time even though i went through college and kind of was complacent it grows in you as you get older yeah there is guilt in not acknowledging when i had the opportunity kind of in conversation with the people that 
that seemed complacent or willfully ignorant. But I also understand that they see my voice now and they see who I am now. And if I ever have a conversation with those people again, I will stand in solidarity with the, um, with the African-American community. And I think I always did. It's just that there are times in conversation when it's like, you know what, it's not even worth fighting this battle right now because they don't even know this side of me. I'm kind of a strange character. I find encouragement and hope with people that are the most blunt with me because it seems like they're getting down to the core of the truth. So in a lot of ways, I know that people around me will, will say that I'm a, I'm a broken record right now and talking about Cornell West. Um, but I would say that his view outlook on the world, it's not just him. It's, it's like him as a consciousness, it's his work. So he basically highlights the idea that we're kind of all in this together. And the beautiful thing to me and the, the almost bleak thing to me is that he says that activism is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And so finding your voice, and I think it kind of relates back to just on the individual level and on the societal level, finding your voice, finding your identity, is, a, is it's a wrestle with authenticity. It's a wrestle with vulnerability. It's a wrestle with kind of confrontation almost with people around you and having difficult discussions. But there is a beautiful thing in that of being true to yourself at the end of the day, understanding that you did stand up for what you believed in. And at the same time, you were compassionate to those around you. And I think that right now in our society, there is a huge amount, whether it be authentic or not, from some of the people on social media, there is a huge amount of an idea that compassion is flowing. If we're going to be a compassionate society, then we have to acknowledge, we have to shine a light on this 400-year problem that has been occurring. Thank you so much to my guests, Dwight Crawford, Neva Evans, Angie Perkins, and John Hanfelder. And thank you so much for making it this far. If you have found this episode meaningful, I hope you'll share it with your friends on social media. This is a very different episode than what I normally produce, but this has honestly been the most meaningful thing I've probably ever worked on. So if you felt that way too, let me know. I'd love your feedback. Thanks for listening. We'll have a new episode up on Wednesday.